You can be turning to John 15 this morning. It's our third examination under the broad topic of Christian community. It almost wasn't going to be, going to be, you know, I always got to at least threaten to preach some other sermon to myself, I guess, every week. I don't know. (laughs) I believe it was Monday. I came across this verse image on Facebook. It had a rainbow background and a white heart, and it wasn't about the ark. And it was Galatians 3.28 in the middle, which states, There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Below was this hashtag, and for you older folks, it's just the number sign or the pound sign, followed by the slogan, love versus hate. And these hashtags are searchable. That means if you type in a hashtag anywhere on some forum or website, followed by that slogan, you will find everything that's been tagged or associated with that slogan. But the rainbow colors, love versus hate, no doubt the verse was being shown in trying to put forward the idea that contrary to the traditional Christian view concerning the sins of the LGBT lifestyle, now it was, oh, we got you now, Christian, see? No male or female in Christ, referring to the T in that LGBT abbreviation. And I've had my fair share of Facebook debates, and I really don't like doing them. That's where I found this picture. But it really ground my gears, I guess, if I'm using that past tense. <laughs> I, so I merely responded to this post saying simply, that verse was just used way out of context. And of course, someone bit the bait, and they said, well, do you go to church on Sundays or Saturdays? Do you eat seafood, pork? Do you have tattoos? Because if you're guilty of any of these things, don't talk to me about context. So then it was game on. (laughs) I gave a very Kevin original, albeit diplomatic as possible, explanation of, first of all, what context means. What Galatians 3.28 is referring to, that is, who are the recipients of Christ's blessing? Any and every believer, not just male sons, which was the normative, referring to heirs of an inheritance. And then I explained as simply and quickly as possible why Old Testament laws like dietary restrictions and strict observance of doing worship on Saturday and Sabbath laws aren't observed anymore, while moral laws are reiterated in the New Testament, including sexual ethics, and why they are observed and should be observed. As I expected the whole time I was writing, and when I posted it, It was (laughs) ill-received. And so I deleted everything. My first comment, even saying it was out of context, my long explanation, and now the people who were commenting on it with hostility and condescension look like they're having an argument with no one. The bottom line is, Jesus said things, and the Bible says things that are offensive. And maybe today's culture, but you read the Bible and you realize that even in the Bible's culture, Even if something is true, even if something is righteous, and if it hurts people, and they're not able to humbly receive correction, 
it seems like people would rather arrogantly dismiss, if not violently oppose truth, if it hurts. Because either A, I deal with what you're saying is bad. How, how dare you? Or B, someone I love deals with what you're saying is bad. And that refers to all sins. If you say gluttony is wrong, I say, hey, show grace because, you know, we love them. We don't want them to feel sad or hurt whenever you oppose gluttony. Or if you say legalism and more rules are bad, and we say, hey, sometimes legalism and rules are good. Barriers for righteousness. We might need to go a little farther than what God lays out to make sure we're really righteous. God, the Bible, Jesus, they're all equal opportunists. They manage to offend everyone. And so true to the source, genuine Christian communities will invite persecution, will likely offend. With that in mind, let's take a look at John 15, 18 through 25 together. It's, it's part of Jesus' message on the final night he was betrayed in the upper room. And if you're able to stand, I do invite you to one last time for the reading of the word of the Lord. John 15, 18 through 25, it says, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, The world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name because they don't know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. Now they have no excuse for the sin, for their sin. The one who hates me also hates my father. If I had not done the works among them that no one else has done, they would not have sinned. Now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But this happened so that the statement written in their law might be fulfilled. They hated me for no reason. Let's pray. Father, uh, perhaps... If I'm honest, the source of my struggling over whether to preach this or not, it's just the simple fact it's not a delightful thing to touch on. It's not an inviting topic to uncover. But the fact is, as you said these words, what do you mean by them? Do they mean exactly as you say them? That seems to be the most obvious. Whatever it is your Holy Spirit is trying to lead us to accept and receive and practice, I pray that that would happen today by your Spirit. We trust you spoke these words. We trust John was inspired to remember and report them. And we trust your Spirit is here present today. So open our hearts and minds and speak to us, Lord Jesus. Help us to have obedient, humble hearts to receive what you're saying. Help us to act on them in any way you would have us act on them. Have your way in our hearts and minds. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We recently just came out of a series together in the book of Acts. And I called that entire time in the book of Acts, all four parts that we examined, I called it Jesus' First Church Continues. 
And with that title in mind, I wanted to call to mind the fact that despite what church people like to argue over, I saw the church in Acts as a direct continuation of what Jesus was saying in the gospel accounts. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that is, some people will, will, will say, well, they gathered in the upper room and that was the start of the church. Or other people will say, well, the Spirit fell on Pentecost and that was when the church started. Whereas I think really two things. Jesus may not see it that way and Jesus may not care <laughs> when the church started as much as we might care. One of the things I do know that the Bible preaches is that Jesus sees us, the community of Christ, as Him. Whenever we remember His body and His blood with communion elements, or whenever Jesus says things like, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. He means something. He understands something about the relationship between His followers and Himself. He probably means it more than we expect He means it. Uh, continuing on that line of thinking when he said to Paul, why do you persecute me? Right? Not my church, not my people, not even my body, but why do you persecute me? In Christ, you are Christ. Insofar as Christ means that. Like Paul says, we are his body. So then we will reflect Him, hopefully. And our interactions as the community of Christ will reflect truths about Him. Three truths I want to unpack today that really aren't encouraging or uplifting from the outside looking in, but I'm not here to pat you on the back, just tell you what the Bible says. This is seemingly what it says to me today. The world hates Jesus. The world doesn't know Jesus. And lastly, the world hates God. And you might be saying, but I thought we're talking about the Christian community. But Jesus in this statement is setting up some expectations his followers, his community can have. And he does so in pointing to who the community is, and that is Jesus. If we want to take Jesus at his word when he accuses Paul, why are you persecuting me? after Paul persecuted what we might call Jesus' followers. Jesus calls it himself. And first, the world hates Jesus. He says again in verses 18 through 20, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. The world hates Jesus. John starts his entire book. In the beginning of his book, he says, He, Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. From birth, from even before birth, the world hates Jesus. Jesus had an earthly father who almost abandoned him until the angel declared Mary's innocence. Jesus had an earthly king who murdered babies in a rampage out to murder him. 
Jesus had a, a worldly church, a worldly religion who plotted his murder from an early time. Jesus had an earthly family who thought him insane and didn't believe him. And Jesus said to them, those brothers of his, unbelievers, he says, the world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it that its deeds are evils. Its deeds are evil. This is why the world hates Jesus. Do you ever like going to the doctors? Not really. It's because why? Well, they tell you all the things you're doing wrong and what you should be doing to be staying healthy and right. It's more discouraging than helpful because if you're like me, you can quickly think, it's too late to change, it's too hard to change, I'm too lazy to change. Right? And Jesus does this in the soul. You ever heard the Sermon on the Mount? For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And while that sounds a little too hard, the Bible over and over says things like it's not too hard. It's not in the the heavens. It's not across the sea. You're unattainable. It's a command near your mouth, near your heart. You're able to grasp it so that you may follow it. Deuteronomy 30. Or like what Micah says, Mankind, he has told you what is good and what is the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. And Micah says this as a retort to a complaint of, What is it, God? What do you want? You want my firstborn? You want a thousand bulls on sacrifices? And Micah is saying, No, it's easy. It's pretty simple. Act like nice, decent human beings (laughs) is what it amounts to. But just like whenever you played the comparison game in school and that friend of yours made their straight A's, I don't know, in advanced calculus while they were in the ninth grade, and you're on your third attempt of basic math, instead of inspiration to try harder, people begin to resent and to hate. What do you mean this man is born king? Herod might ask. What does this baby have over me? What do you mean this rural rabbi with no education? How does he teach all those things that gather crowds? And now he says he can forgive sins? Make rulings about what's legal and what's not legal on the Sabbath? Resentment. What do you mean, big brother Jesus, who hardly got in trouble by dad and mom when we were kids, what do you mean he's this famous preacher and healer and now he's claiming to be the Messiah? Jesus testifies the world's deeds are evil. The very message of the gospel is a two-edged sword. One edge is love and forgiveness. How great that God would become flesh and and die for me, that, that He would see me where I am, where I've sinned, and know my evil and depravity so much more than I'm willing to admit, and He would still come and die for me. How great! But the other side is that you and I have so offended God Our sin is so evil and corrupt that there is nothing on planet earth or in heaven that we could ever wish to try or even gain one second of acknowledgement from God that would even remotely suggest forgiveness. All of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind our sins sweep us away. Jesus has come and He has told us in the Sermon on the Mount, it's not just about the killing, it's about hating from the heart. 
It's not just about adultery. It's about the lust from the heart. And by extension, it's easy to extrapolate. It's not about the stealing. It's about the envying from the heart. And when it comes down to it's not about what you do, it's about who you are from the inside. Not the fruit, but the branches that produce the fruit. You. It's judgment. And it's easy to hate a judge. And if Jesus has saved us from ourselves, from the judgment due to us, and if He has granted His righteousness, His holiness, who He is onto us, then those who have yet to accept Him will hate us. Let me say that one more time. If Jesus has saved us from ourselves, from the judgment due to us, and has granted His righteousness, His holiness, who He is unto us, then those who have yet to accept Him will hate us. And for those who don't receive Christ but hate Him, it's because they don't know Him or God. That's our next part. He says, But they will do all these things to you, that is, the community of Christ. Opponents will hate disciples, not keep the disciples' word, on account of my name, because they don't know the one who sent me. This is important because Jesus is echoing a line, or reusing a line from earlier in John. They don't know the one who sent me. And who did he use that line on to begin with? Not who we would call the world. Listen, you could go to parade, go to any parade in June, if they ever had a parade if it had anything to do with rainbows or anything else. But you could show up at a parade and say, you don't know God. You could show up in front of a school shooter and say, you don't know God. You can show up at a casino and talk to an adulterating man spending his livelihood away, and you could say, you don't know God. Excuse me, my phone is bugging me. But the contemporary picture for us, though, what Jesus did is that Jesus was at a church talking to people who claimed to have their Bibles figured out and saying, you don't know the author of this book. You don't know God. John eight fifty four and 55. My father, Jesus says, and he's, you say about him, he is our God. He is the one who glorifies me. You've never known him. But I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. And so if Jesus comes and he frustrates, he offends, what he says makes people hate him, it's not a Jesus and what he says problem. It's a God, I don't know him problem. By virtue of Jesus making this judgment against them, you've never known Him. It suggests that God can be known. And we see that Jesus is received by some. It must mean that such persons know God. Who knows God, you might ask? How does one know God? It seems like Jesus said somewhere that a person needs to realize that they're poor in spirit. That they mourn, meaning they know the chasm, the gap. They know 
that their righteousness is like filthy rags. It's people who are gentle, not arrogant and harsh and caustic. People who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are merciful and pure in heart. And peacemakers, not strife causers. These are the receptive people to God. And what we see in the Gospel accounts are two types of people. On one hand, we see people who are more concerned about their knowledge, their position, their power. Again, who is this rural rabbi coming into the temple and telling us how to be religious? I worked hard. I studied for years. I'm a pious religious leader. And who is this man? And then there are others who fall to the ground and say, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. See, his words upset the Moses worshippers when Jesus told them he was the one from heaven with better bread than Moses had. His words could have been offensive to the Samaritan woman when he said salvation only comes from the Jews. Or his words could have been offensive to the Gentile when he told her he was really here only for Israel and to bless and minister outside of Israel was like giving food to dogs instead of the children at the table. And instead of being offended, she responded, but even the dogs get scraps. The latter two took judgments that are judgmental. Let me back up and say that. Judgments are judgmental. And I wonder if we live in a time where judgments are almost unacceptable because they're too offensive. Judgments are judgmental. They can be offensive But the offense is not offensive because the judgments are true. No, the offense is only offensive when the judged party lets it be offensive. The Samaritan woman heard that her entire religion, her entire upbringing was incorrect, invalid. Salvation did come only from the Jews. It actually came by a particular Jew named Jesus. And instead of saying, how dare you? This is my country. I grew up here. I respect some religious leaders from here, and you're here to school me? No, instead she said, okay, you are the Messiah. I got that figured out. Let's celebrate. And instead of the Gentile woman saying, you greedy, selfish xenophobe who won't heal my demonic daughter, have some pity. No. Instead she said, you're the Lord, but don't even dogs get scraps? Right? They could have been offended. And in our days, in our day and age, lawyers could have been on stand for hate speech. But the only people being offended by God were the people who thought they knew God. And what Jesus ultimately reveals is that it's much greater than just being a, a human target of hatred. As Jesus in the flesh judged and revealed, revealed dark deeds for what they were. And it's much greater than just being misunderstood and not being known by people. Jesus reveals that, really, the world hates God. The world hates God. I don't even know if I can grasp that truly. Let's let's see what Jesus says first in verses 22-24. He says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. Now they have no excuse for their sin. The one who hates me also hates my father. If I had not done the works among them that no one else has done, they would not have sinned. 
Now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Jesus is saying essentially, if I wasn't put into their equation, their world, they would have been innocent as far as sinning against me and the father were concerned. So here's an illustration. Imagine the wayward husband, and if adulteress comes into the picture and he sins with her, it, it only makes sense that if that adulteress never entered into the equation to begin with, the wayward husband may have never sinned as far as that is concerned. And so the idea is Jesus came to the world. Now what will the world do with him? Jesus came from the Father. What will the world say and do about the Father? And Jesus came and he preached forgiveness. He preached repentance. He preached love for one another. He preached purity. He preached righteousness. He did acts of mercy. He healed sicknesses. He restored sight to the blind. He provided food for the hungry, hope for the hopeless. He did works. And because of the way the world reacted to him, they are guilty of sin. Christ was in the equation and the way he was received led to their sin. Verse 25, he says, but this happened so that the statement written in their law might be fulfilled. They hated me for no reason. Christ is quoting Psalm 69 in context of Psalm written by David. He says, those who hate me without cause are more numerous than the hairs of my head. My deceitful enemies who would destroy me are powerful. Though I did not steal, I must repay. <clears throat> it could be when David was running from Saul, we don't know. But the point is, is for Christ, the hatred against him will eventually run so deep and be so awkward and baseless. Nevertheless, tragic because ultimately he will be crucified out of it. And in the earthly sense, the question might be, what for? Why? Did he talk too much? Did he heal too many people with terminal illnesses? Did he restore too many blind people with sight? What should he, should he have not fed all those thousands of people out in the middle of nowhere? And for all the sinners, is it, was it for all those sinners around the table and tax collectors and prostitutes? Should they have not, should they just have found a hole to hide in and scraps to eat? Why was Jesus murdered? Jesus says, to what should I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to each other. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't mourn. For John did not come eating or drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Jesus is hated without a cause. See, John was too religious, too conservative, too unbending. But Jesus was too loosey-goosey, too liberal, seemingly too able to compromise, which is a misunderstanding. But the bottom line is, is Jesus is just saying, for whatever reason, I'm just hated. I'm just standing before a persecutor who has caused Jerusalem to scatter and he's pulled families apart and I'm asking him, why do you persecute me? Because Jesus, in our passage today, is talking about the community. So we need to understand, Jesus is saying, this is how you'll be treated. They hated me, they hate the Father, they will treat you likewise. 
Tell, tell a world that celebrates, downright worships, glorified sinful sexuality that God has a better plan than this. And this is sinful. Tell the world that and see if they love you and they love Jesus' idea on the matter and they love the Father. And so in view of this, it would be easy then to retreat. It would be easy to say, well, I don't want to offend. I don't want to live a life that's received this way. And we begin to feel this way. It's easy to forget the context. Sometimes it's worth it to back out, to zoom out way out and say, why am I here in the first place? How, how and why did the disciples get here? Why is Peter there? James, John. They came because Jesus called them. Because Jesus forgives sins. Because Jesus loves well. Because where the world offers excuses as to why you're sinning and suffering and just deal with it, Jesus offers hope and rescue and redemption and freedom. And he says, I assure you, you will weep and wail, but the world will rejoice. You will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come, but when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been brought into the world. So you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will rob you of your joy. So the context is that Jesus has been ministering with the disciples for some time and they know he's trustworthy. They know he's worth it. They know he is good. And even though an entire world seems to be persecuting him, they've been with him and they've been with the world and they know that he is worth it. Do you know that today, that as the community of Christ even if the world hates you, he's worth it. We're not out to offend the world, but to save it by Christ and his message. And just as it's not hateful, rude, mean, or offensive for a doctor to correctly diagnose cancer when he sees it, so it's not hateful, rude, mean, or offensive for Christ to correctly diagnose sin when he sees it. But perhaps because it's unseen and perhaps because some of the sins we, we seem to crave, whereas the cancer we would never crave, nevertheless, it could be that perhaps Christ is able to judge what no one is willing to judge because we secretly crave those sins. Have you ever had those friends before? Those people who say things that are on your mind, you just didn't have the guts to say it because it's not socially acceptable? They were here a few months ago, Dan and Beth Bannum, good pastor friends of ours. They planted a church 20 years ago in, in Beaverton, Oregon. And, and Christy and I, we've known them as practically as long as we've been pastors here. And I remember the first time, I think the only time we were in their house, we, begin to, we began to notice things in each room. Now, around Christmas time, my mom will have nativities or Santas, or I think she's even beginning to have those figurines of the classic red Christmas truck in, in most rooms of the house. Some people might have bee-related decor in every room. I don't know why. <laughs> but Beth, not because she's into far eastern culture, but she has figurines of elephants in every room. Why? She said, well, in most discussions, I like to talk about the elephant in the room. And it's true. As long as I've known the Bantams, they really struggle with small talk. 
They're more on the subject in every conversation. They want to have conversations that matter. They're on the subject that probably needs to be talked about. You're not willing. Well, they're always willing. And I think what happens here in the community of Christ really matters. It has lasting effect. It upsets the world because I think the world has gone to great pains to be distracted and therefore diminish the true issues in the world, which is sin inside us, rotting us from the inside out, and the need for forgiveness, and the need for moral purity and righteousness before God, the need to reflect Him because we were made to do just that, to know Him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, um, it's sad to think that the world hates you, they don't know you, and the world hates God. But for the humble and the repentant who have received you, no matter how hard or times of persecution feels like come upon us, you remind us day in and day out in our walk with you that it, it it's worth it. You offer the treasure in the field that we were able to sell all our possessions for. You offer the pearl of great price. Father, we uh, pray that as we continue to minister to those around us, that you would give us open-minded and humble-hearted people to receive your word. We don't like to offend people. We're not out to do that. We're actually out to save people. And the world seems to condone sins that tear people from the inside out. And we don't like seeing people torn from the inside out. We want to see them to live into their purpose, following you, reflecting you. And so help us to balance that well, to trust you, to know that we're not seeking to persecute or offend people. We're seeking to offer people hope, the hope that you've offered us, the forgiveness you've offered us, and the joy that comes in knowing the Lord. Father, we love you and we thank you. We ask and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. A reminder that we need some help to move some tables and chairs to the firehouse.